0: All right. Check. I think everything's working now. I think we're good to go. Yeah, I think it. I think it's right. All right. Going to start this. Going to start this intro and get get started here.
1: Uh, there we go. Hey, good morning everybody. Happy Monday morning to you. This is Just Human number 162. And those of you who are here early, you get to you get to help me figure something out. I I can either the Carry Lake lawsuit is what I want to present today. But it's 67 pages. 66, 67 pages. I'm willing to read the entire thing, but if I do that, that's all we can fit into this two hour show. Um, and I'm just gonna have to, I'll just have to read it and go about it pretty much as fast as I can. And I'm sure it'll be really interesting, I'm sure it'll be great to read the lawsuit and get it all in, but I it won't leave time for anything else, I don't believe. I think I'll be. I think I'll be I'll be trying to cram it into the show, but I'm willing to do it. I think it'll I think it'd be good. Or I can read Liz Harrington's thread, which is pretty long, on the Carry Lake lawsuit, and I can read some excerpts from the lawsuit, and that'll leave me time to present some stuff on uh, the Seth Rich laptop case and maybe a couple of other items. Um, so. It's up to you guys that are here early in the chat. Just put in chat whether you want the thread plus other topics, or if you want the entire lawsuit. And while you uh, while you give me your your input on which whether you want you want option one the entire thing or option two the highlights and the Liz Harrington thread. And while you do that, I'm going to go ahead and present some um, some other things. Just want to show y'all some stuff I've been up to recently. If you missed it, I was on EQ Chamber last Thursday night with Absolute 1776, Diddy and Johnny. This was a pretty good show. If you look up EQ Chamber over on uh, Rumble, you'll find them or you can find them also on Telegram under EQ Chamber. Looks like most people are saying the thread. Okay. Option two. Okay. Okay. Also, I promised you guys I promised you guys a bonus hour. Well, instead I did a whole show. You may have noticed it was on Saturday night. instead of recording something and um, and uploading it, I went ahead and did a show and it was great. Um, I had a really good time streaming. I had the opportunity presented it itself so I went ahead and streamed. Um, live on Saturday night And I covered a uh, Trump's contempt request You know, they got denied And Shifty Adam Schiff And what I think is going on with him And then the main thing was Swamp rat uh, Republican Rivera Who was indicted on eight counts Along with a co-conspirator last week This is a pretty important case Because it connects to so many other Swamp monster cases And I, I kind of think that this Rivera thing with Venezuela might have been another attempt to entrap Trump in a Venezuela-Russia collusion type thing. Um, and I think it didn't pan out. It didn't develop the way they wanted it to, but there are some indicators in it that they may have been trying to hatch some sort of Venezuela, which is close to Russia, Venezuela collusion into the Trump um, administration, and they just failed to get it to connect. Anyway this is the bonus hour I was promising instead I did it live so if you're interested that's just human number 161 then last night me and burning bright did our defected show over on Badlands media it was great um I would in my opinion I think... Episode five was actually just slightly better, but last night was pretty dang good. So if you're interested, Burning Bright and I had our usual deprogramming discussion, our narrative warfare discussion, and uh, we hit mostly on the Twitter files. We talked about cinema um, defecting from the Democrat Party and uh, going independent and a couple other topics. Good episode. It's over on Badlands Media on Rumble if you want to catch that replay. All right, it looks pretty there are some people wanting option 1, but I think option 2 going for the thread and a couple other topics is what is winning out. Yeah, it looks it looks to me like option number 2 is what is panning out. I appreciate everybody who wants to hear me read the entire lawsuit. Um But yeah, I see that I see that most of y'all are saying saying let's do option 2. That's cool with me. All right. Before I get to it, let me just go ahead and get some endorsements out of the way. Benson Honey Farms, if you're still shopping for some Christmas gifts, Benson Honey Farms is a great place to go. Or if you just need some honey, or if you need some soap, or if you need some candy, I love their products and I use their products every day. I have some of them right here next to me. I have the honey right here. I have what's left of the bag of candy. Cause I've been eating it. Me and my son, um, Benson honey farms is a, is a patriotic company, American small business, and they have excellent products. I've tried it all. And I like everything that I have had from them. The barbecue sauce, um, everything. It's so good. If you go here and you're interested in any of their products, if you use rep code, just human, you help me out. It helps the show out. And you also get great products. In, in return. So other option to support the show, red, white and bourbon 45.com. That's where I have my merch. There's some new stuff that has been added here. Patrick Gunnels also has his merch here, by the way. Um, there's some new stuff that's been added here. The program yourself shirt has been added and um, might get some new, might get some new stuff in here pretty soon. Um, some more new stuff, I should say. There we go. Let me sort by new. There we go. So we have we've added some new products in here. We got some stickers. We got some koozies. My favorite thing here, though, is just the freaking mug. I got one of my mugs. This is one of my original mugs here. This is the new mug. that just has my logo on it. And these mugs are quality. I really like them. If you just, if you want a product in exchange for supporting the show, Red White and Bourbon45.com is a great place to go. But of course, the number one way to support the show is just human.substack.com. A paid subscription here is the best way to support what I do. But even if you don't want a paid subscription, go here and sign up. You'll get my podcast, uh, the podcast version of the show, and you get occasional articles from me. Okay. All of that out of the way. All of that out of the way. All right. One last thing before I get started with this thread, I need to tell y'all that I am um, expecting a delivery today and I left them. I put a note on the door cause they actually tried to deliver to me on uh, Friday, but I was down here doing the show. And so I missed them. Um, it's FedEx and I have to sign for it. So um, I left my number up there. So I'm expecting to get interrupted during the course of this show to go up and catch that delivery. Just, FYI, if my phone starts going off and I'm like, oh, got to go, be right back. That's what's going on. Okay.
0: All right. The thread.
1: So, Kerry Lake, now that the uh, election has been certified in Ari- Arizona, Kerry Lake um, is allowed to sue. Um, and so she's filed this 67 page lawsuit and Liz Harrington put together this thread with some highlights of it. And let's go, let's go through this Carrie Lake versus Katie Hobbs. Um, I will put the link. I have the link to the lawsuit here and I'll put that in the chats. If anybody wants to read the whole lawsuit for themselves, let me put this in right here. Okay. Okay. I know what I'm I know what I'm going to do. I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to read the first part of this this case. I'm going to read this summary here and then. Yeah, yeah, I'm going to read this the starting summary and then I'll go to Liz's thread. I think that makes a lot of sense. So this lawsuit is Carrie Lake versus Katie Hobbs, Stephen Richer. Uh, Bill Gates, Clint Hickman, Jack Sellers, Thomas Galvin, Stephen Gallardo, all those Maricopa County Board at su- uh, Supervisors, um, Scott Jarrett, um, those are who the defendants are. Summary of the case. The eyes of the country are on Arizona. Uh, by the way, the guy in this case, one of her lawyers, Olson Kurt Olson, I believe that is the same Olson that Karma Patriot has dug into who worked in the Trump administration. I believe it's the same Kurt Olson. He had another lawsuit going on that uh, Karma Patriot was following pretty intensely. Um, I remember her doing some threads on it. All right. Summary of the case. The eyes of the county are on Arizona. On November 30th, 2022, Rasmussen Reports published a poll of likely U.S. voters asking about the election day problems with vote tabulation in Maricopa County. This poll asked whether responding voters agreed or disagreed with contestant Carrie Lake's statement calling the election botched and stating, quote, I think I just heard a knock on the door. (laughs) Hold up. I'll be right back.
0: I think I just heard a knock on the door. Okay, yes, that was it.
1: Package received. <laughs> Sorry for the interruption, but um it's very very important that I receive the item I ordered for my wife for Christmas. So that's done. Now I just got to wrap it. <laughs> All right, good. Okay. Super pro show here. Sorry. Um, Let's get back to this. (laughs) This is about our sacred right to vote. A right that many voters were, sadly, deprived of on Election Day, November 8th. The results of that poll are stunning. 72% of likely voters said they agree with Carrie Lake's statement, including 45% who strongly agree. The number of illegal votes cast in Arizona's general election on November 8, 2022 far exceeds 17,117 vote margin between Arizona Republican gubernatorial candidate Carrie Lake and Democrat gubernatorial candidate Secretary of State Katie Hobbs. Certified at the official state canvas on December fifth, twenty twenty two. Guys, guys, the margin is seventeen thousand one hundred and like, <laughs> seventeen. Like seventeen thousand one hundred and seventeen. Dasting. Okay. Witnesses who were present at the Maricopa County Tabulation and Election Center, the MCTEC, Runbeck Election Services, and a multitude of Maricopa County vote centers, as well as other facts meticulously gathered, show hundreds of thousands of illegal ballots infected the election in Maricopa County. In addition, on election day, thousands of Republican voters were disenfranchised as a result of Maricopa County's election officials, misconduct in connection with the widespread tabulator or printer failures at 59% of the 223 vote centers in Maricopa County. I remember when they were claiming it was only 20%, 59%. These facts preclude Arizona's vote totals canvassed on December 5th, 2022 from being used to determine the next governor of Arizona in Finley versus Sorensen. The Arizona Supreme Court held that mistakes, omissions, and irregularities, in the conduct of an election may void it if they affect the result or at least render it uncertain. But this case is about more than just those bad acts. Rampant and clear violations of federal and state law have become pervasive at the Secretary of State level under Secretary Hobbs and in the Maricopa County Recorder and elections Elections Department. This case is about restoring trust in the election process, a trust that Maricopa County election officials and Hobbs have shattered. The judicial system is now the only vehicle by which the trust can be restored. Just a few days ago, the public learned Secretary Hobbs and Maricopa County election officials, including recorder Stephen Richer, participated in an unconstitutional government censorship operation using an election misinformation reporting portal created by the Department of Homeland Security and the Cybersecurity and Information Security Agency. State and local election officials sent censorship requests to the Election Misinformation Reporting Portal, which the federal government, in partnership with social media companies and other platforms like Twitter and Facebook, would then remove speech they did not like from the public view. Hobbs, Richer, and others participated in this secret censorship operation. Their actions were, were per se violations of Arizona citizens' free speech rights under the United States Constitution and the Arizona State Constitution. These actions and others also constituted election misconduct in accordance with Arizona State law. There is much more. The debacle that occurred in Maricopa County on November 8th, 2022, was chaos as Maricopa County's Board of Supervisors chairman, Bill Gates, admitted on live TV during a press conference held shortly after Election Day. Republicans vote at a 3-to-1 ratio over Democrats on Election Day, and were thus disproportionately and adversely affected. The tabulator's rejection of thousands of ballots set off a domino chain of electoral improprieties, rampant administrative chaos and confusion, lengthy delays at polling sites, and ultimately the prevention of qualified voters from having their votes counted. Video footage, first-hand accounts, and expert testimony directly contradict Maricopa County officials' public statements deliberately attempting to downplay these events. Such acts, along with the government censorship programs described above in which Defendant Hobbs and Richard participated, only serve to amplify Americans' deepening distrust in our election system. The evidence, including a detailed sworn declaration by a cyber expert who, among other things, spent nine years testing electronic voting machines on behalf of the same voting system testing lab, VSTL, that certifies the machines in Maricopa, shows that the machine failures Arizona voters experienced in Maricopa County on Election Day could not have occurred absent intentional misconduct. Thousands of voters disproportionately Republican, gave up voting due to the long wait times or simply avoided the polls after seeing the chaos reported on the news. The expert evidence shows conservatively that at least between 15,603 and 29,257 Republican voters were disenfranchised from voting as a direct consequence of the voting machine failures in Maricopa. In addition, it is well known that mail-in ballots are one of the voting methods most vulnerable to election fraud. After the contested 2000 presidential election, the bipartisan Jimmy Carter-James Baker Commission identified absentee ballots as the largest source of potential voter fraud. In the 2022 general election, over 1.3 million ballots were cast through the mail-in vote or placed in drop boxes in Maricopa County. Testimony by whistleblowers and witnesses with firsthand knowledge shows that Maricopa County officials violated Arizona chain-of-custody laws for hundreds of thousands of these mail-in ballots. These chain-of-custody laws are a critical deterrent to keep illegal mail-in votes from infecting the election. With no chain-of-custody, there is no way to tell whether over 300,000 ballots cast in Maricopa County are legal ballots. Maricopa County officials also permitted the counting of tens of thousands of mail-in and Dropbox ballots that did not satisfy signature verification requirements. Signature verification, whereby the signature of the ballot envelope is compared to the voter signature on file to help confirm that the person who completed the ballot is actually the voter is one of the most important methods of preventing mail-in ballot fraud. If the signature associated with the ballot does not match the signature on file with the government, the ballot cannot be counted unless the signature mismatch is properly cured. Below is an example of a 2020 ballot envelope submitted in Maricopa County with the ballot signature shown on the left and official file signature of the voter shown on the right. The fact that these two signatures do not match is clear even from a cursory glance. Maricopa County election officials allowed tens of thousands of ballots with signature mismatches like this one to be counted in 2020. They did the same thing in the 2022 general election. The official election results certified by Secretary of State Katie Hobbs in the marquee race at the top of the ballot, a contest for the governorship between Hobbs herself and Kerry Lake showed a difference in in votes between the two candidates of approximately 0.67%, 17,117 votes out of 2,559,485 cast. The separation of votes between Hobbs and Lake is far narrower than the number of presumptively illegal and illegally cast ballots in Arizona. The fact that seventy two percent of voters don't believe this election can be trusted is a wake up call. The election day debacle, together with all other together with other illegal and improper procedures through uh, through which the election was administered, preclude the defendants in this action from certifying Hobbes as the winner of the election. Now to Liz Harrington's thread. The number of illegal votes cast in Arizona's general election on November 8th far exceeds 17,117 vote margin. Witnesses who are present show hundreds of thousands of illegal ballots infected the election in Maricopa County. This case is about restoring trust in the election process, a trust that Maricopa County election officials and Hobbs have shattered. According to the cyber expert who worked for nine years for the same lab that certified Maricopa County machines, this is a good get, getting a cyber expert who certified these same machines to testify that, quote, machine failures Arizona voters experienced on Election Day could not have occurred absent intentional misconduct that is huge for this case. Conservatively, between 15,603, 29,257 Republican voters were disenfranchised because of the machines. Whistleblowers say over 300,000 mail-in ballots had no chain of custody, with no way of telling if they are legal ballots. Maricopa County election officials allowed tens of thousands of ballots with signature mismatches, like this one, to be counted in 2020. They did the same thing in the 2022 general election. I wonder if this image right here is thanks to the Maricopa audit. I wonder if the images from this 2020 ballot owe their origin to the audit. Signature matching is a joke. A 2020 review of 230,339 envelopes. It has to be from the audit. Look at this. It has to be from the audit. The 2020 review of 230,339 envelopes. 18,022 were egregious mismatches. More than the entire 10,457 vote margin. 19,631 failed the standards. And in 2022... 4,328 same names of the egregious mismatches voted again. 5,289 same names of bad standards voted again. So the same people, whoa, whoa. They use the same names mismatched as they did in 2020. These fraudsters did. They just did the exact same thing again, only it was 4,000 plus in this this go-round and then 5,000 plus on bad standards. Whistleblowers on the deep flaws with signature matching equating to tens of thousands of illegal votes being counted. So the whistleblowers they have are saying tens of thousands of these votes were illegal, but were counted anyway. One witness says the math never added up 60,000 signatures processed per day with 20 to 30% of those being rejected, but only 1000, one of those would be cured. And it's my understanding when they mean curing is they actually like contact the person to say, did you vote? This, did you sign this? Did you vote at this location? Did you drop it off here? And they try and make sure that it was actually that person, but they only went through that process with 1,000 of those. Okay, let's read this excerpt here. Jacqueline here reviewed approximately 42,500 ballots and rejected about 13,000 to 15,000 of them with rejection rates in the 25 to 40% range. Her co-workers complained of similar rejection rates. Andy Myers described Maricopa's process for signature verification and curing. So here's the process they went through. In my room, this is testimony from a- Andy Myers, a whistleblower. Well, he's either a whistleblower or a witness, one or the other. And in my room, well, I guess he's both. In my room, we had a whiteboard that Michelle would update with the number of ballots to be verified that day. Throughout the day, Michelle would update the progress that people were making in verifying signatures. The math never added up. Typically, we were processing about 60,000 signatures a day. I would hear that people were rejecting 20 to 30%, which means I would expect to see 12,000 to 15,000 ballots in my pile for curing the next day. Okay. However, I would consistently see every morning only about 1,000 envelopes to be cured. We typically saw about one-tenth of the rejected ballots we were told we would see. Andrew, one of the signature reviewers, would tell me every day that I was going to get crushed the next day because he was accepting or rejecting, accepting, not accepting, like taking it in, accepting, kicking it out. A ton of bagged signatures. However, we never saw the correlation. So another person that was going through the, doing the signature matching would tell Andy Myers, yeah, bro, you're going to get crushed tomorrow because there's so many signature mismatches. You're going to have so many ballots to cure. And then he would come in the next day and it would just be a stack of a 1,000 instead of twelve to 15,000. Managers were reversing and approving signatures that were rejected. Most of the work of those on level two managers were not subject to the accountability of observers. Rejected ballots sent through processing again because managers wanted them approved. The most likely explanation for this discrepancy this is from the lawsuit. The most, like- most likely explanation for this discrepancy is that the level two managers, who re-reviewed the rejections of the level one workers, were reversing and approving signatures that the level one workers accepted. And rejected. Again, that's accepted, EXCEPTED. An exception. This seems to me to be the most likely explanation. If this is the case, then the level two managers were changing about 90% of the rejected signatures to accepted, ACCEPTED. Most of the work of these level two managers was not subject to the accountability of observers but the reversal of rejected ballots should be properly recorded in the computer rec- records of the EVRT program. Maricopa signature verification managers had a practice of sending already rejected ballots back through the process with the implication that they wanted those ballots approved. On the last day of work, this is a, a quote from either a whistleblower or a witness or whatever. On the last day of work, November 15th, we were asked by manager Celia to go through perhaps five to seven thousand ballots. She had already they had already been rejected at levels one, two, and three. We were asked to go to the Shell program and to only find one signature that matched the green envelope. Even if all other signatures in the program did not match the green envelope. Even <laughs> Even if all her seen, whoa. The implication from Celia is that was desperate to get the work complete and that she wanted the ballots approved. These five thousand to seven thousand ballots had already been through the full level one, two, and three process and been rejected. Therefore, I do not know why we were going through them again and that is why it seemed that Celia wanted them approved this practice of pushing rejected ballots back through the system in which with the hope that they would be unrejected was also attested to by Andy Myers quote when the accepted numbers grew the managers would when the accepted numbers grew the managers would resend those accepted signatures back out into the general pool hoping that someone would approve those same signatures, which would thereby reduce the accepted signature load. Maricopa permitted any signature reviewer to unreject ballots without accountability using curing stickers. Workers were able to obtain massive amounts of these stickers and use them to cure ballots without oversight in order to perform. Okay. This is a quote from Jacqueline her name is Onigkete or Onikate in in order to perform the curing process we were given a batch of stickers to place on a ballot which included stickers with abbreviations some but not all of the ballot stickers and abbreviations were as follows VER meant that we verified the voter's information and their ballot was approved to be counted WV meant that a voter did not want to verify their ballot over the phone. And LM meant that we called the voter and left a message. One of the problems with the stickers was that nothing prevented at level one, two, or three worked from requesting a massive amount of approved stickers and placing them on ballots. Again, observers did not match, did not watch any level three work and did not watch most of the level two work. Once stickers were placed on ballots, there was no record on the ballot or elsewhere to determine who placed the sticker there. We were told to not sign or initial the sticker, but to only date it. Accordingly, there was no way to know who placed verified stickers on ballots. The system was wide open to abuse and allowed for potential false placement of verified stickers without accountability. Third-party contractor, Star Center, cured ballots ballots with no observers present, completely off-site. Star Center, which was a third-party contractor that worked completely off-site, but had the same access to the voters' file information as we did on the computers at the MCTEC to cure their affidavit signature. My understanding of the Star Center's curing process was to verify information from the voter's file, the last four of their social security number, their driver's license number, street address, full name, and any other identifying information in their file. It is my understanding that the Star Center was able to cure and did cure ballots, but were not able to see the actual ballot with the signature on it. It is my understanding that the Star Center work was not monitored with observers. Whereas my work was required to be monitored by observers. Since they had the ability to cure and reverse the rejection of signatures, I do not know why their work was not monitored by observers. 59% of Maricopa County's 223 vote centers had printer and tabulator failures. This disproportionately affected Election Day voters who went for Cary Lake 3 to 1. The rampant errors, confusion, and equipment failures on Election Day in Maricopa County reduced the number of votes cast and votes counted from citizens who chose to vote on Election Day. The result of this confusion was predictable. A larger reduction in the number of votes cast for Lake a much smaller reduction in the number of votes cast for Hobbs, and a highly improper relative advantage created for Hobbs. Election Day voters in Maricopa County favored Lake in the race for Governor of Arizona by a wide ratio, approximately 3 to 1. The citizens who were deterred from voting, or those votes, were not counted on Election Day, would have given Lake a material gain of votes that could have changed the outcome of the race. The Republican National Committee ran an election integrity program in Arizona on November eighth, twenty twenty two. The election integrity program engaged eighteen volunteer attorneys, or roving attorneys, who were each asked or each tasked with traveling to and observing select vote centers throughout Maricopa County election day. Text from text hired by Maricopa County. That'd be text, Techs T E C H S. I'm having a nine one one. Tabulators aren't reading ballots. It's maybe 50-50. There's a line around the building all day long. And they have some of these texts from different people. What is the current record for T-Tech mileage on election day? (laughs) Worship and Word Church still has at least 50. They had a line around the building all day. I'll help break the equipment. I was wrong. 50 inside and about 100 outside. Still waiting. Maricopa Board of Supervisors claimed the tabulation issues were fixed by mid afternoon. That is wrong. No fewer than 34 vote centers had tabulator breakdowns around 3 p.m. and throughout the day. From the lawsuit, the tabulator breakdown pr- persisted at almost all of the problematic vote centers, along long after the Maricopa County Board of Supervisors suggest that the problems have been fixed. For example, the Maricopa County Board of Supervisors report states at 10.14 a.m. on Election Day, the, quote, printer technicians identified a potential solution to the tabulation breakdown to adjust printer settings, confirm successful print and tabulation at one site, at 11:30 a.m. on election day, the board of supervisors quote issued guidance to all technicians in the field to make settings changes to the OKI computers. And quote by a mid-afternoon, most sites were no longer experiencing the printer issues. These board of supervisor statements are inaccurate. In fact, the vote center declarations show persistent tabulator breakdown issues throughout election day. The vote center spreadsheets demonstrates that, at a minimum, the tabulator breakdowns continued at no fewer than 34 vote centers after 3 p.m. At many vote centers, tabulator breakdowns persisted from the beginning until the end of the day. I remember the board of supervisors going on TV a couple times and saying, "It's oh, it's at 20%, but we have text there helping them out. And I remember one of them giving the excuse that it had to do with a power strip that was turned off. Like they just when they set these up, it was just um, they just neglected to turn on a power strip, and so we got that turned on, and now everything is working just fine. yeah, poll worker testified approximately one hundred and seventy five at his vote center gave up because of the long lines and did not vote sixty eight year old woman unable to vote for the first time since nineteen eighty one due to inability to stand in line. For two to three hours on Election Day. In the lawsuit, Maricopa County Vote Centers without voting. For example, Mr. Steele, a poll worker on Election Day at First United Methodist Church in Gilbert, was tasked with helping voters check in to the site books at 1.30 p.m. until the last voter left the vote center at around 10.30 p.m. Mr. Steele testified that in his estimation, 170 to 175 voters waiting in line on the evening of Election Day gave up and did not vote. The Election Day chaos also affected senior Maricopa County voters who were unable to stand in line to vote. Due to chaos that occurred at so many voting centers on Election Day, it is safe to assume that many more voters abandoned the voting line to cast a ballot or were discouraged from traveling to a vote center in the first place. I, it's you know it's it's really speculative but it's well reason it's it's reasonable speculation to to say that a bunch of people did not vote who otherwise would have because of the lines because you know how many people are working jobs and they're like okay on my lunch break I'm going to go vote or I'm going to my boss gave me an hour to leave work to go vote or I'm I'm going in between job sites I'm going to run over here real quick and vote while I have 30 minutes And you get there and it's a two hour wait, you can't, you can't. And then for the elderly, of course, and not, and not just elderly, but anybody with any kind of physical condition, having to stand in line for that long or for like, I can imagine me with, with kids, you know, I have to be certain places at certain times to get my kids. And I'm sure that's. I'm sure there's a lot of voters who had to be certain places at certain times to get to pick their kids up, and they could their window for voting wasn't two to three hours long. Okay, uncounted door three ballots co mingled with already tabulated ballots. There is good reason to believe that the number of door three ballots is far greater than 16,724 that Maricopa County claims. Let's see what these pages from the lawsuit are. Okay. Co-mingling of tabulated and non-tabulated ballots on election day. The vote center declarations also proved that there were numerous instances in which vote centers co-mingled tabulated and non-tabulated ballots. At the close of election day prior to transporting the ballots to MCTEC, at least 16 vote centers improperly co-mingled tabulated ballots deposited into the tabulator doors one and two and non-tabulated ballots deposited in door three into the same black canvas transport bag or other containers. Then we have a declaration here from one of the whistleblowers. The Board of supervisor report states that this co-mingling was intentional During the November 2022 election, general election, the Elections Department provided direction to poll workers that they could use one of the two black ballot transport canvas bags that each vote center was provided to transport the door three ballots if the quantity exceeded the capacity of the envelope. Maricopa County Board of Supervisors report, page six. The Board of Supervisors report further concludes that the co-mingling occurred in only two vote centers. Both of these statements are false. According to the Maricopa County election procedure, to ensure ballots are not commingled, DOOR 3 non-tabulated, ta- non-tabulated ballots must be transported to the MCTEC in a separate envelope or bag. Due to the widespread tabulator breakdowns on Election Day, vote centers were overwhelmed with an unprecedented number of DOOR 3 ballots. Most vote centers with tabular breakdowns would not have been able to fit their door three ballots into the separate designated envelopes. Without a second special transport bag, the vote centers were forced to package these ballots in alongside already tabulated ballots. The MCTECH was not made aware of this when it received the ballots. And uh, we have a declaration from Olson the improper transport process could have easily resulted and door three ballots not being properly counted, or in some cases, ballots being double tabulated, both at the vote center and at the MCTEC for at least 26 of these vote centers. Maricopa County Election Day voters want to ensure that their vote is counted at the vote center. If a voter deposits their vote, into door three, it involves a more complicated tabulation process first requiring transport to MCTEC with a strong possibility that the voters ballot will not be will not be properly counted. The vote center declarations indicate that a significant percent of voters did not believe that ballots deposited into door three would be properly counted. This belief was validated by the November 8th, 2022 election with widespread reports of ballots being improperly commingled and rampant chain of custody problems throughout Maricopa County. The Maricopa County Board of Supervisors claim to have processed 16,724 door three ballots. From the evidence in the Vote Center spreadsheet and the massive amount of voter declarations detailing number of door three ballot drops, there is good reason to believe that the door number three ballots is far greater. And thank you for the Rumble rant, R. Terrell. Yeah, I actually agree we need election day to be a national holiday. I agree with that, and I also think that that's um that's one of the issues that we have unique uh we have unique agreement on that issue between people on the right, in the middle, and on the left. I think most Democrats, if you ask them, ask them if election day should be a holiday, they're going to say yes. Um, I think that's that's one of those rare issues where I think, regardless of your political views, you agree on that one thing, and the only people who disagree with election day being a holiday are the swamp, are the deep state and the swamp who want to continue to be able to commit fraud. And they want election months so that they have plenty of time to commit their fraud. They don't want it to all be on one day. There aren't many issues like that, but I think that is one where there's broad agreement. Okay. America, it makes for a good litmus test of whether or not a politician is a swamp monster. Do they agree with Election Day holiday or not? It's a good litmus test. All right. Maricopa County Board of Supervisors tried to cover up how many vote centers had lines of over 90 minutes long. The Maricopa County Board of Supervisors report attempts to deny the existence of long lines and wait times at many vote centers on Election Day. It cannot be disputed that there were oppressively long lines at the vote centers with tabulator breakdowns. Sun and Clark Declaration, vote centers column in. For example, the Board of Supervisors reports states that only 16 vote centers had average wait times on Election Day that exceeded 60 minutes, with only seven of those 16 vote centers having wait times between 80 and 115 minutes. And then it lists which ones those were. The vote center declarations show a completely different story. In fact, at least 64 vote centers out of the total 223 Maricopa County vote centers, so this would be 28.7%, had long enough lines on Election Day for them to be noted by various declarants. Although the Board of Supervisors report states that only seven vote centers had wait times greater than 80 minutes, witness testimony indicates that wait times of at least 80 minutes occurred at many other vote centers not listed in the Board of Supervisors report. And then we have declarants here, witnesses who are saying, look, at this location, there was a 90-minute wait, a two-hour wait, two- to three-hour wait, 350 to 400 people in line. And then 120-minute, 90-minute. People's Pundit, who's a great follow. I I really like Richard Barris. I like him quite a bit. People's pundit found Republicans had issues trying to cast a ballot compared to Democrats in a margin of 58.6 to 15.5%. A conservative estimate shows the tabulator breakdowns suppressed Kerry Lake's election day vote between 15,603 and 29,257. This from the lawsuit, this poll provides specific, sorry, from the lawsuit this poll provides scientific basis to determine a predictable turnout for the election as a whole based on accepted met- metrics election day respondents were also asked did you have any issues or complications when trying to vote in person such as tabulators rejecting the ballot or voting locations running out of ballots a much larger proportion of poll respondents identifying as republican reported having issues while trying to cast a ballot on election day as compared to respondents identifying as Democrats by a margin of 58.6 to 15.5%. The rate of those reporting issues was 39.7% for voters who identified as independent or as an other party. Barris's expert opinion based on accepted mathematical principles and Maricopa County voter history is that the tabulator breakdown suppressed election day turnout and that absent the machine breakdowns at vote centers across Maricopa County, Carrie Lake would conservatively have gained between 15,603 and 29,257 votes over Katie Hobbs in Maricopa's final election canvas. Katie Hobbs and Stephen Richer colluded with the federal government to censor Americans and infringe on their First Amendment rights. Katie even complained about a private Facebook posting stating Trump won. Let's get this. From the lawsuit, freedom of speech is one of the most sacred rights in the U.S. Constitution. Documents produced in the recent case of Missouri versus Biden revealed that DHS and CISA, CISA, secretly created a centralized portal in April 2020 for state and local election officials to report so-called disinformation that was counter to whatever narrative these government officials sought to promote. Okay, on CISA's behalf... CISA would take reports from election officials like Hobbs complaining about posts on Twitter or Facebook. CISA would then contact social media companies and other platforms to censor election-related information. Such acts are per se violations of the First Amendment. A one-page summary of the so-called election misinformation reporting portal produced in the Missouri First Amendment litigation is attached. This document lists a number of benefits to state level of officials, including, quote, the ability to look across the elections jurisdictions to identify patterns of potential impact of misinformation activity. This will permit nation level, national level organizations to help put priority on response actions and make decisions regarding media engagement in parallel with actions taken by the social media companies. These federal, state, and local government officials did not simply attempt to publicly correct information that they believed was inaccurate. Rather, they secretly sought to remove information from the public domain that they disagreed with. Upon information and belief, hundreds of thousands of censorship requests by state and local election officials were processed through this portal between 2020 and 2022. Secretary Hobbs and Recorder Richard directly participated in this program censoring Americans. For example, from the Olson declaration is an email chain from Hobbs' Hobbs office to CIS misinformation reports requesting deletion of two Twitter posts that Hobbs claimed undermined confidence in the election institution in Arizona. The time elapsed from Hobbs' initiating complaint to Twitter's acknowledgement of removal took less than eight hours. So to make that perfectly clear, guys, Hobbs' office requested two Twitter posts to be deleted by Twitter, and within eight hours, it was done. I'm going to read this, and then I have, I have some comments to make on this specific topic. In another complaint Hobbs made to misinformation at syssecurity.org, Hobbs complained that a private Facebook post stating that Trump had won. She complained she complained about a private fake Facebook post stating Trump had won. Upon information and belief, Hobbs and other Maricopa County officials sent many more censorship requests. Lake issued a public records request for such documents on December 9th, 2022. Richer also participated directly in a propaganda and censoring program at the national level of CISA through the 2022 election cycle. For example, as attached in the Olson Declaration is a CISA memorandum regarding a meeting on March 29, 2022, that included, among others, three Maricopa County employees from the recorder's office, CISA officials, and the General Counsel of Twitter, Vijaya Gade. The memorandum states the purpose of the meeting as... Quote, the purpose of the CISA Cybersecurity Advisory Committee protecting critical infrastructure from misinformation and disinformation subcommittee meeting was to hear a brief from Mr. Stephen Richer, county recorder of Maricopa, Arizona, on current election processes and needs among election officials and to discuss this role in the MDM, that's the misinformation space. Richard then gave a case study presentation on how he believes censorship of election related information that he disagreed with was necessary. Hobbs and Richer are striving to secretly stifle facts and manipulate voters' opinions about elections, while at the same time allowing or participating in the violations of election laws, Arizona election laws described herein. All right. So I have a comment on this whole thing of them making these requests for social media to take this stuff down. Elon's got the receipts. And I know y'all are already thinking this. Elon's got the receipts for this stuff. On Defected last night with Burning Bright, we were talking about how Elon has the receipts for Twitter influencing the COVID and the vaccine narrative. And he's going there. That's he's He's going there. Elon is going to show how the government and people... <clears throat> I expect Elon's going to show how the government and people um, in, D, in the uh, the NIH and the CDC and Fauci and others tried to control and influence the COVID and the vax narratives and tried to diminish talk of natural medication and treatments, and elevate other things. Elon's going there, and it's going to be a huge topic, and it's going to be a massive red pill for a bunch of people who fell for the hoax aspects of uh, the the COVID uh, pandemic. But I expect Elon has these receipts, too, for election fraud, and what a massive reveal that is going to be if Elon has Matt Taibbi or Barry Weiss or Schellenberger start showing files that prove that Katie Hobbs and Stephen Richer and other Democrats were telling Twitter what election post to censor, de-rank, de-amplify, shadow, all that stuff. It's, it's, it's gotta be coming. these people are so stupid and so arrogant. The, th- the emails they send and the documents they write from their offices are subject to FOIA. So Carrie Lake can FOIA this stuff from Hobbs' office and Stephen Richer's office. And Elon... Has control of the Slack messages and the DMs and the emails to Twitter, and he can Like they can both work together to blow this whole thing up, and show how this election was completely manipulated in the most sinister of way, the most sinister of ways. All right. I saw, I saw some Rumble rants, and uh, one of them already disappeared. Let me scroll back up. Um, thank you guys for the Rumble Rants I really appreciate it And everybody watching on Foxhole Thank you for the uh, the gold pills over there Very much appreciate it On Foxhole That's right I'm reading Liz Harrington's thread um, Here's a link to it If you guys Anybody over there is interested in it um, From Music and Fiction Good morning Music and Fiction He says Another big point that people need to remember These lawsuits were filed within The five day challenge period Whereas the 2020 suits we're usually filed outside of the challenge period. So there's a better chance with this one. That is correct. KB94 MX5. Thank you for the rumble rant. They say thank you for a great show. Always. Here's a coffee. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. S. Cushion. Thank you for the rumble rant. It says wishing me a superb day. I wish you a superb day. Thank you very much. And R. Terrell again, thank you for the Rumble rant. Wait, that Missouri case is going on now. That's correct, it is. That means they had that information way before the Twitter files dump on the facts that they had secret-backed channels. Good guys. Yeah, so some of this information was out, and then like that Missouri case, there's all this information coming out of that Missouri case that is about more topics than you would think it would be about. Um, that FBI agent Chan's testimony is the most interesting to me. Um, and there's a, there's some specific reasons for that. Um, which I might get into here in a little bit after I get done with this thread. Um, that Missouri case is huge. And I have to say, I have to give a shout out to Tracy beans, um, of everybody. I think Tracy beans has been doing the best coverage of that Missouri case, um, it's been going on for a long time and I was not following it or paying attention to it until this past month. And Tracy beans has been on it the whole time and, and she's doing great work. So if you're interested in learning more about that case, I recommend looking up Tracy beans work on it. She's been doing threads about it. And of, of course her podcast. Desil or yeah, Desil. Thank you very much for the rumble rant. This looks great will Carrie Lake get her day in court? I don't know. I mean that is the big question. I don't know. This case does look great this This case seems to have everything needed, and it's the right time and it's it's gone about the right way. um Carrie lake is doesn't has no quit. she has no quit in her um from what we've read so far the case and we're not through it it's well written it's not too it's not too hyperbolic it's very professional and clearly stated um it's got you know it has citations of other laws and other cases in it like it would need to to show hey this has been adjudicated before um it's got all this testimony and whistleblowers i mean it's it seems to have everything that that is needed and these violations are so egregious and obvious. Um, So I'm. I think like y'all, I don't I don't want to get my hopes up too high. But of but of all the cases that we've looked at in the past two years and everything we've been through. I mean, this one doesn't feel like a Hail, a Hail Mary. You know, this one doesn't feel like. it doesn't feel desperate if it, it feels like a solid effort at the right time with the right ingredients um and the remedy she's calling for is a new election i believe so i i feel positive about this case and i feel some hope for it but it's like i'm i'm tempering that Knowing what we've been been through. I feel I feel more solid. I I feel more solid and confident in this case than I have any of the others. Um, Minus the one that came out of Texas that got a bunch of other states in on it. You know, Um, that one felt good, but it felt way too late. So that's where I am on this. Sean Joe over on uh, Foxhole. Thank you very much for the cookie. I appreciate it. I love cookies. I do. I love them too much. It's actually kind of an issue with me. Um, I'm known for eating way more than my fair share of cookies. If there are any in the house. Hey, bear BL man. Thank you so much. That is a ton of coffee money. Wishing you and your family a wonderful holiday. I've been following you for over a year. Thank you so much. That is, that is very generous of you. And I really appreciate it. Um, same to you. Same to you. I hope you and your family have an awesome holiday. And I feel good about this holiday season, man. I feel I feel like there's so much. We got so much going on in the news that I feel like so much is going our way. And even if it's not going our way exactly how we want it to be, it's doing damage to the Democrats and to the uniparty. And I just, I just feel really positive and hopeful. Um, And I also feel like really enjoying this, like making a serious effort to really enjoy this holiday time uh, with family and friends. Okay. Let's, um, okay. I got this part, didn't I? No, I didn't get this part. Okay. Yeah, I read this right here with Sisa. Now this is where I am. Okay. D nine eighty six ask over on Foxhole. Do you think those that conceded were plants? I am not sure. Um. I'm I'm not sure. I think. Uh, I think you. I think a lot of people got really bad advice from the the usual swamp creature crowd. That as soon as they lost, they're like, "Okay, you have to concede because it's bad for the country if you don't. You need to concede because it's going to be bad for the elections and it's going to be bad for the country. So you need to, that's the right thing to do." And they got a lot, a ton of pressure to concede as quickly as possible for the good of the country. You know, is an altruistic type narrative. And the reason I think that is because I've heard it said that that is what happened in 2020 with a lot of candidates. I believe it was people's pundit who talked about this and how the, um, the, the Republican and the, the RNC and all the lobbying groups and the, the election machine people just immediately, We're on people to say concede as soon as possible because it's what's good. Don't fight this. You ran a good race. Walk out with your dignity and there'll be another opportunity for you. Um, So that's that's what I've been told from other people who know that some of what goes on in, in those in the back room. So that's my best. That's my best information. My best guess. So. All right. Right here. Highly qualified cyber expert who performed security tests for nine years for the EAC says that the voting machine failure can only be categorized as intentional. Oh, come on. Open up for me. Here we go. All right. Get from the lawsuit. Given the policies and procedures governing the testing and use of electronic voting systems in Arizona, the extent and character of the problems and breakdowns encountered at vote centers in Maricopa County on Election Day eliminate any plausible explanation other than intentional causation as the reason for the widespread breakdowns of printers and or tabulators at the vote centers that day. Maricopa County did not experience these kinds of widespread breakdowns in the days leading up to Election Day or during the limited testing performed on the election equipment boom okay let's guys guys that is a that is a that is a such an important observation these same vote centers were up and running leading up to election day with the same equipment and they didn't have these problems they didn't have these problems until actual election day. The sudden widespread appearance of preventable breakdowns on election day, a day on which it was known that the electorate would be heavily weighted toward voters favoring Lake, was an outcome materially and adversely, and Maricopa indicates that the problems were intentionally caused. Clay Perrick a qualified cyber expert with nearly 20 years experience, he has operated at some of the highest levels in the U.S. government in the areas of information assurance, information security and cybersecurity, vulnerability management, security tests and evaluation, and system accreditation. Mr. Perrick has provided cyber work and support to organizations such as NATO and NASA and the Marshall Space Flight Center and multiple Department of Defense agencies within the U.S. government. Mr. Perrick also spent nine years, from 2008 to 2017, quote, performing security tests on vendor voting systems for certification from the Election Assistance Commission, EAC, and various secretaries of state. In his declaration, Mr. Perrick details his assessment of the events that gave rise to the catastrophic failures with the printers and tabulators on election day at vote centers in Maricopa County. His conclusions as to the widespread printer and or tabulator breakdowns on election day at vote centers in Maricopa County are damning quote, some components of the voting systems used in election in the election were not certified, thus endangering the entire voting process. The use of some of these uncertified components violates Arizona law. There were numerous procedural violations that can only be categorized as intentional. Maricopa County experienced a widespread technical breakdown across a significant portion of their vote centers. They reported 70 sites out of 223. That would be 31.8% were affected. Other reports list as high as 132 sites out of 223, which would be 59.2%. Whichever figure is correct, given the required standards and procedures involved with the election process, an unintentional widespread failure of this magnitude occurring could not arise absent intentional misconduct. The explanations given to the public and media for what caused the technical issues were not correct. The county also did not sufficiently provide the affected voters with instructions nor the poll workers with procedures for the contingency plan or a backup plan, let alone ensure the plan and the mitigation was implemented effectively and efficiently. The required chain of custody of these ballots does not exist. We have a Runbeck whistleblower here who says 298,942 early ballots had no chain of custody. And Maricopa County did not know how many ballots Runbeck received on election night. This is against the law. Maricopa County election officials engaged in numerous breaches of Arizona election law in their handling and custody of ballots, making it impossible to conclude that the vote tallies recorded or reported by Maricopa County accurately reflect the votes by the Arizona voters. Arizona law requires, quote, The, the county recorder or other officer in charge of the election shall maintain records that record the chain of custody for all election equipment and ballots During early voting through the completion of provisional voting tabulation, a proper chain of custody is not ministerial. The U.S. Election Assistance Commission instructs that, quote, chain of custody is essential to a transparent and trustworthy election. Chain of custody documents provide evidence that can be used to authenticate election results, corroborate post-election tabulation audits, and demonstrate that election outcomes can be trusted. Maricopa County election officials received two categories of early voting ballots on election day. EV ballots received at ballot drop-off sites and mail-in ballots returned through the U.S. Postal Service. Maricopa County delivered these ballots to Runbeck to obtain electronic images of the signatures on the ballots. After scanning the ballots, were eventually transferred back to the Maricopa County Tabulation Election Center, the MCTEC. Maricopa County failed to maintain and document the required secure chain of custody for hundreds of thousands of ballots in violation of Arizona law, including as described below for almost 300,000 ballots delivered by Runbeck on Election Day. A Runbeck employee observed that Maricopa County election workers delivered early vote ballots retreat from ballot drop boxes and mail-in ballots from the postal service. Neither of which were a comp Whoa. Oh, okay. Y'all didn't see that, but my screen just like flickered. Um, Lost my place. Sorry about that. My monitor just like lost power for a moment. All right. According to the employee, Runbeck received almost 300,000 ballots on election day, which included the early voting ballots. The required chain of custody for these ballots does not exist. Indeed, two days later, on November 10th, 2022, the employee observed that Maricopa County had to ask Runbeck how many ba- ballots Runbeck had received on election night, demonstrating that Maricopa County itself did not know how many early vote ballots had been retrieved from the ballot drop boxes on election day, which is in violation of Arizona law. The Rumbek employees testimony is confirmed by Maricopa County's response to a public records request for chain of custody forms. Early voting ballot transport statements were produced by Maricopa County on De- December 6th, 2022 in response to a public records request by Kerry Lake Maricopa County produced 1,000, 149 of these documents dated October 12th through November 7th. But not a single document from election day drop box ballot retrievals. But yet on election day, they received 292,000 election ballots, early voting ballots, not including the provisional ballots picked up by the U.S. Postal Service. That were dropped off on election day. Maricopa County did not produce chain of custody doc- chain of custody documents for any of these. Observer witnessed maladministration by election workers. "Quote: The ballot inside the containers were not counted. The ballots delivered without any required documentation. Temporary employees moved unsecured metal carts full of ballots without any security or monitoring." The fact that no required chain of custody documentation exists for almost 300,000 ballots, as well as others, is further confirmed by the sworn sworn testimony of a credentialed election observer at the MCTEC on election day. That observer testified she observed the trucks and vehicles delivering ballots and memory cards from the vote centers and ballot drop boxes. She observed the delivery of the transport containers of ballots retrieved from drop boxes on election night. The witness observed the receipt and processing of ballot transport containers. She saw MCTEC workers cut the plastic security seals off of the ballot transport containers and let them fall to the floor without any attempt to record seal numbers. When the transport containers were opened, the ballots inside the containers were not counted, and therefore no numbers were recorded or on retrieval forms. She observed the transport containers of early voting ballots delivered without any required documentation or paperwork on the outside of the containers. No early voting ballot transport statements were utilized. She observed early ballot envelopes being removed by workers from open containers without any attempt to count them or document them as required by Arizona law. She observed packages of misfed, misread ballots collected and moved. i gotta open this page. No discernible process for tracking any of this. She observed temporary employees moving unsecured metal carts full of ballots without any security. The entire ballot transfer process provides opportunities for legal ballots to be lost or illegal ballots to be added. Chain of custody procedures and documentation prevent ballots from being lost or added. Chain of custody documentation must show the location, ballot container seal number, date, time, and ballot couriers for every transfer. Yet ballots were transferred without any documentation of chain of custody. It's a feature, not a bug, says Trump spokeswoman Liz Harrington, the entire ballot transfer process provides opportunity for illegal ballots to be added. Oh, it's the same paragraph. Yep. It's a, it is, it's a feature, not a bug. Runbeck employee said employees were unlawfully allowed to add family members ballots into batches with zero chain of custody. The Runbeck employee also testified that she observed Runbeck employees were permitted to add their own and family member ballots into the batches of incoming ballots without any documentation or tracking the chain of custody of these ballots. There is no way to know whether 50 ballots or 50,000 ballots were unlawfully added into the election in this way. The Rumbeck facility is not a legal ballot drop-off site. Ballots not delivered to the office of the county recorder are not valid and should not be counted. Arizona law states that it is unlawful to, quote, knowingly add a ballot to those illegally cast at any election by fraudulently introducing introducing the ballot into the ballot box either before or after the ballots in the ballot box have been counted. Given this blatant violation of Arizona law, there is no way to tell the number of ballots that were illegally injected into the 2022 election. Runbeck can print duplicate ballots at will, and nobody can tell where they come from. Throughout the 2022 election cycle, Runbeck printed duplicate ballots. These are duplicates of ballots that had been damaged in some way or could not be read by the tabulator. The selections from the voters were supposed to be filled in and a new duplicate ballot printed. The Runbeck employee stated that there were at least 9,530 duplicate ballots printed. When these ballots were picked up by Maricopa County, there was no documentation, no delivery, shipping receipt, no chain of custody document, no signature. They were simply handed over to the delivery driver. In 2021, Arizona Attorney General expressly warned Maricopa that it has been violating ballot chain of custody procedures, Specifically on April 6, 2021, Attorney General Mark Burnovich issued a report concluding that Maricopa County violated Arizona law by failing to maintain proper chain of custody for early ballots. retrieved from ballot drop boxes in connection with the 2020 election. The Attorney General wrote, quote, These procedures designed to preclude ballot tampering are critical given the volume of early ballots that were dropped at these locations during the 2020 general election. Yet, Maricopa County... Again, violated Arizona law concerning the chain of custody for early ballots' retreat from ballot drop boxes during the 2022 election. Maricopa County added 25,000 ballots to their totals after Election Day. Highlighting the chain of custody failures discussed above is the fact that two days after Election Day was completed, Maricopa County found more than 25,000 additional ballots, whereas properly followed, chain of custody procedures would require Maricopa County election officials to know the exact number of ballots submitted by the day after election, November 9th. Specifically, Maricopa County's public statements concerning remaining ballots to be counted on November 9th and November 10th show an increase of approximately 25,000 votes with no explanation of why the number of remaining ballots would increase. On November 9th, the county recorder announced that 275,000-plus ballots had been sorted for scanning and signature verification after the Maricopa County Vote Centers closed. On November 10th, Maricopa County election official Celia Neighbor contacted the county's contractor, Rumbeck, and asked how many ballots were scanned at Runbeck, and Runbeck reported to nine 8,000 ballots, an unexplained increase of 25,000 after the legal deadline for accepting ballots had closed. This unexplained increase in early voting ballots was also reflected on the Department of State website between November 9th and November 10th. On the 9th, Maricopa County reported to the Arizona Department of State that it had counted $1 million 136,849 ballots. It had 407,664 ballots left to be tabulated. That is a total of 1,544,513 5, ballots. By November 11th, Maricopa County reported that on the Department of State published, and the Department of State published. That, the Maricopa, that Maricopa had counted 1,290,669 ballots and had 274,885 ballots left to tabulate, which is a total of 1,565,554 ballots. The shifting numbers of ballots evidence Maricopa County's failure to account for early voting ballots and failure to maintain security and chain of custody for the ballots as required by Arizona law. To top all of this damning evidence off, Katie Hobbs was overseeing an election where she was down by ten points, being run by a county recorder who started a PAC, a PAC, with the sole mission to stop Carrie Lake and Mark Fincham. Key Maricopa County officials have actively opposed. Lake's political views and priorities. Election Day chaos that depressed the number of votes for Lake under the administrative responsibility of these officials leads to the inference that the Election Day failures were not unwelcome to the officials on whose watches these failures occurred. Secretary Hobbs, who ran for governor while overseeing her own election, recently threatened county supervisors with arrest if they did not certify the election. Threatening government officials in the performing their duties itself is a crime. Federal election disclosure records show that Maricopa County Recorder Stephen Richer has raised thousands of dollars for a political action committee he founded, Pro-Democracy Republicans PAC, which was expressly created to oppose Lake and her political allies. Richer has additionally made public statements in opposition to Lake and her political allies, taking credit for founding this political action committee. The stated mission of Richards PAC is, quote, to support pro-democracy Arizona Republicans who reject conspiracy theorists and demagoguery from candidates who maintain the 2020 presidential election in Arizona was stolen. However... While Richer's PAC claims to support Republicans, it has received money from a man who donates almost exclusively to Democrats and in direct opposition to GOP gubernatorial nominee Carrie Lake, GOP Secretary of State nominee Mark Fincham, and several state legislators and candidates for Maricopa County Supervisor. Richer is responsible for the conduct of an election for the fourth largest county in the United States, and he is directly advocating against candidates for office in the very county over which he oversaw the election. The maladministration and illegal votes in Maricopa County caused the state of Arizona to wrongfully name Hobbs as the candidate who received the most votes in the election of governor for Arizona. <clears throat> On December 5th, the Secretary of State, Katie Hobbs, formally certified that she, Hobbs, received 1,287,891 votes in the 2022 election, and Carrie Lake received 1,270,774 votes, a difference of 17,117 The rampant equipment failures and illegal processes in Maricopa County make it impossible to know with any reasonable degree of confidence whether an outcome-determinative number of votes for Lake were not counted, miscounted, or illegally deterred. With the available information, no one can know whether Hobbs actually received more votes than Lake in this election, whose administration was overseen by Hobbs. As set forth above, the Maricopa County Election Board and the election officers in Maricopa County engaged in misconduct that nullifies the results of the 2022 election in Maricopa County. All these failures and the, affli- and the that afflicted the voting at vote centers on Election Day and by failing to follow Arizona law with respect to signature verification and chain of custody, as set forth above, the inclusion of vast numbers of illegal votes in the vote totals reported by Maricopa County preclude the inclusion of Maricopa County votes in the tallies for the election of Governor of Arizona. In order to avoid disenfranchising illegal legal voters in Maricopa County, the county must redo its vote for the 2022 election, eliminating legal votes from the count. This is the remedy that Kerry Lake is asking for. A redo. As set forth above, the maladministration and illegal votes in Maricopa County caused the state of Arizona to wrongfully name Hobbs as the candidate who received the most votes in the election of governor of Arizona. Lake received the greatest number of votes and is entitled to be named the winner. Alternatively, the election must be redone in Maricopa County to eliminate the effects of maladministration and illegal votes on the vote tallies reported by Maricopa County. As set forth above, the maladministration of legal votes in Maricopa County during the 2022 election caused grossly inaccurate vote tallies to be reported, unconstitutionally infringing Carrie Lake's right as a voter to have her vote counted only in accordance with all legal votes and her right as a candidate to have all votes counted from all voters who wanted to vote for her. Maricopa County's denial of Lake's constitutional right to vote precludes Maricopa County from certifying the results of its unconstitutional Election. And that was Trump's spokeswoman Liz Harrington's breakdown or highlights of Kerry Lake's lawsuit. Now, for your consideration. Think about what we just read in that lawsuit. And think about what was posted here by Q on November 18th, 2022.
0: 17,117 vote difference.
1: Just four year consideration. Rumbeck, Dominion, Secretary of State offices, investigators, researchers, whistleblowers, patriots in trusted positions. Trust yourself. You have seen the truth. Time to show the world. Focus. Focus. Ascension. Q. Yes, very dasting, isn't it? Very dasting, Howard. Thank you for the Rumble Rants, Arturell again. You just said the buried lead, maladministration. Jovan has been talking about this in July. Or was talking about this in July? There is already case law in the books and it has they have to redo this election. I man, I pray that they do. This has been my theory of what could happen regarding 2020. Thank you for the rumble rants, Arturo. Thank you very much. All right, guys, that leaves me. I, like I said, just to wrap it up, I feel, I feel good about this lawsuit. I, I, I think it's the best one we've seen as far as this election stuff goes. I think it has a great chance. Um, I'm very hopeful and positive about it. I'm not going to get my hopes up too high. I'm tempering them, you know, with our experience, Um, kind of preparing myself for it not to go anywhere, but of everything I've seen, this looks so good and it's at the right time and it's done the right way. And you got tons of witnesses and whistleblowers from people who worked the election. I mean, it, it seems to have everything, everything. So, um, And she's just asking for a redo of the election in Maricopa, not all of Arizona, just Maricopa, Maricopa redoing the election and. uh, Something to pray about. All right. I have time to talk to you guys about. Seth Rich's laptop. But actually, what I should say are Seth Rich's laptops, plural. So, this case right here is a Huddleston versus the FBI. And what it is, is a FOIA case where um, they're suing the FBI to get all this information that the FBI has on Seth Rich's laptop. And this battle has been going on for a while. When did this first start? Um, June 1st, 2020 was when this lawsuit started. This has been going on a long time since June 1st, 2020. So there was, um, There's been this back and forth with them. There's been a lot of stuff revealed in this case, and this it's pretty interesting. But everything that comes out of it, there's the normie, conservative, incorporated take on it, that it's always bad, and the FBI is always obfuscating, and they're um, wiggling around trying to find any excuse possible to not give over this information. Um, And I'm not saying they're not. But I'm just saying that every every time I see any news report about this case, it's always very, very negative and uh and cynical and blackpilled. And the judge back here on September 29th ordered the FBI to turn over a bunch of stuff. And this is a huge filing. I don't I didn't read this whole filing on the show, I know that, but I know that Um, I presented part of this and the judge ordered the FBI to turn over this stuff. The FBI got back to them and said, look, we have, we have stuff on the laptop and it's on a CD. It's a, we have imaged images of it. Um, for us to go through and turn all of that into a filing (coughs) that could be presented at the rate that the judge told them, the the judge told them they have to produce so many documents per month until they produce it all. They were like, it's going to take us like 50 years to do this at the rate that you have prescribed to us. Um, So there's been this back and forth. Well, it came up that there's more than one laptop and this most recent filing by the FBI is an effort to, um, clarify what laptop they're talking about, because the plaintiff is saying, look, you guys are obfuscating and you're not being, you're, you're deceiving the court and me by not making clear which laptop you're talking about. So there's a briefing coming up where they're supposed to meet about the laptops and clarify what's what. And this is the filing I want to go over with you because I think there's something really, really interesting in this. So this is, I have just enough time to go through this. The defendants, um, the FBI, this is their reply and response to the briefing that is coming up regarding Seth Rich's laptops, plural. All right. I'm going to read some of this and then we're going to stop and look at something and I'm going to read some more. Both parties. Ah, here we go. Both parties have requested clarification and/or reconsideration of the court's September 29th order, directing the FD, FBI to produce information it possesses related to Seth Rich's laptop. That's in quotes. That's been the language that's been used a lot. Seth Rich's laptop, singular. The FBI has requested clarification and or reconsideration of whether the court considered the FBI's exemptions 7D-3 and 7E-6 to withhold the compact disc containing images of Seth Rich's personal laptop. Plaintiff has filed an opposition to FBI's requested clarification, arguing that the FBI has misled the court about Seth Rich's laptop and that Exemption 7D3 and 7E6 have been waived or otherwise are inapplicable. Plaintiff has also requested clarification of the court's September 29th order, specifically whether the court is referring to Seth Rich's work laptop or his personal laptop. The FBI files this combined response and reply to the pending briefing. The sixth de- declaration of Michael G. Seidel is attached as Exhibit A in support of this pleading, and its contents are incorporated herein. <clears throat> On the personal laptop, the subject of the personal laptop. As previously stated, the information the FBI possesses related to Seth Rich's personal laptop is a compact disc containing images of the laptop that was provided to the FBI by a local law enforcement agency. You would guess the Metropolitan Police, of course. The FBI does not have, nor has it ever had, physical possession of the actual laptop itself. To simplify this matter for the court and shut down plaintiff's hot potato concerns... The FBI is filing a separate motion for leave to submit exhibit in camera. That means just in front of the judge and will provide the court with a see through redacted version of the FD 302 identified in the FBI's Vaughn index. The FD 302 clarifies for the court exactly what was provided to the FBI by whom and for what purpose. (coughs) Pardon me. So Understand the FBI never had possession of Seth Rich's personal laptop, but they were provided with image comp- CDs with images of that laptop and what's on it um, by local law enforcement. They are willing to go in front of the judge in a private. That's what in camera means. It means just in front of the judge and and they're just going to show the judge, look, this is what we have. This is who it came from. This is why we got it. It's not for public, but we'll show the judge so the judge understands that these exemptions we're claiming here are legit. The plaintiff also argues that the FBI has provided inconsistent statements about whether the FBI extracted and processed data from the compact disc, referencing a motion filed early in the litigation when the FBI was still trying to provide the court with page count of documents to process. The FBI can typically identify the types and approximate volume of files on compact disc without extracting the data. In this case, as soon as the FBI determined that the compact disc was exempt in its entirety pursuant to several FOIA exemptions, the FBI found no need for data extraction. Therefore, no data extraction occurred. Finally, Plaintiff argues that the FBI has waived exemptions 7D3 and 7E6 by failing to brief them, citing to a string of non-FOIA cases. Plaintiff's counsel is a seasoned FOIA litigator and understands a FOIA case can be decided on the Vaughn Index alone or in conjunction with agency declarations and summary judgment briefing. The FBI clearly asserted and explained the exemptions in the Vaughn Index, the side declarations, and the related summary judgment briefing. To, su- to suggest they were waived is nonsense. Now, all of that had to do with the personal laptop, okay? What I just read. Now, here's the work laptop. Plaintiff requests clarification as to whether the court's September 29th order is referring to Seth Rich's personal laptop or his work laptop. The FBI presumes the order refers to the compact disc containing images of Seth Rich's personal laptop, Is that is the only laptop at issue in this case. Plaintiff is correct that the FBI made no mention of the work laptop in its motion for summary judgment. That is because the work laptop is not an agency record subject to the FOIA. During its search for records responsive to this request, the FBI located records acknowledging the FBI's receipt of the work laptop. The FBI processed these records, which document the receipt of the work laptop, releasing all segregable information. These records are identified as follows. Email dated April 10, 2017, released in part on the Bates pages. Hey, list those pages FBI form FD 1087 dated May 19th, 2017 and one B evidence form released in part email dated June 26, 2018 consulted to the FBI by OIP released in part. The FBI collected the physical work laptop from a non-government third party as acknowledged in the Vaughn index. I'm guessing the DNC is who they collected it from. <clears throat> And the work laptop is in an FBI. Here we go. The work laptop is in an FBI evidence control room, according to information provided in the FBI 1B evidence form. The work laptop is not an actual record, but rather physical object or evidence and is not subject to the FOIA. And therefore, the FBI did not address this item in its prior filings. So they're clarifying here, this whole case that I just showed you has been going on for so long, it's always been about the personal laptop, which the FBI never had possession of, but has. they have a CD that has images of that laptop. They have a copy of it that's on a CD that was given to them by local law enforcement. That's only the personal laptop. And that's what all this this case has been about this entire time. And that's what the FOIA requests have been about. And all of that. And then now the plaintiff has said, look, you're you actually are we talking about the personal or the work laptop? And the FBI's, well, which this case has always been about the personal laptop. And this case has to be about the personal laptop because the work laptop is evidence. And it's not subject to FOIA. So it doesn't even make sense for this case to be about the work laptop. Because the work laptop is not something you can file a FOIA suit over or make a FOIA request for. While conducting additional research to confirm the whereabouts of the work laptop, the FBI located a DVD and a tape drive, which are also currently stored in the same evidence control room, and are marked as derivative evidence. Derivative evidence is defined as, quote, evidence generated from the original or source evidence in the laboratory division or partner laboratory or CART unit. The term agency record under the FOIA extends only to those documents that an agency both, one, creates or obtains, and two, controls at the time the FOIA request was made. The work laptop, tape drive, and DVD are not agency records under the FOIA because control by an agency requires more than mere possession. Under the first part of this law, tax analyst, this case right here that was decided, the determination of whether something is an agency record and therefore subject to FOIA depends on whether the record was one, either created or obtained by an agency, and two, under agency control at the time of the FOIA request, The second part under tax analyst and burka established four factors relevant to the determination of whether the FBI exercises sufficient control over a record to render it an agency record, including one, the intent of the document creator to retain or relinquish control two, the ability of the agency to use and dispose of the record as it sees fit three, the extent to which agency personnel have read and relied upon the document and four, the degree to which the document was integrated into the agency record system files. The sixth CIDL declaration provides extensive discussion of the FBI's application of the four factors in support of the determination that the physical work laptop, DVD and tape drive are not agency records, but rather are physical evidentiary objects, not subject to FOIA. See, I understand why people get upset about this and why especially Conservative Incorporated generates a bunch of clickbait whenever they try and get access to this kind of thing and are told no. And then they go and make these clickbait articles about how, God, the FBI is trying to hide everything from us. They don't want us to know about this, blah, 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 blah. But change the context of it and understand that you don't have the right to go and get access to evidence in a criminal investigation. You can't you can't just demand through FOIA that evidence in a criminal case should be given to you under FOIA. It's physical evidence in a criminal case. There's no situation where it makes sense for law enforcement to just provide evidence to the public before there's a prosecution and a trial. And if it was any other situation, you change the context of it, change the subject matter, but the same circumstances, that would make complete complete sense to people. But because the letters FBI are involved, And because the name Seth Rich is involved in this, everybody immediately assumes, oh, there's something sinister going on here. There's some sort of game being played to prevent us from knowing the truth about Seth Rich's murder. When what's really going on is that this is physical evidence in a criminal case that is being protected because that case is still ongoing. And there are investigations related Two, the DNC hack and Seth Rich's laptop, they're still ongoing. We learned from the Missouri, that same Missouri versus Biden case that we mentioned earlier in this program from that FBI agent Chan. He said that the investigation into the DNC hack is still active. This would be part of that. why would we want law enforcement to give up the evidence they have and allow the people who participated in these criminal acts to know what law enforcement has on them? Now, newly located records. And I actually, I haven't gotten to the most, the most juicy bit of this yet. During its search for the work laptop, RIDS contacted an FBI special agent assigned to an FBI computer intrusion investigation. As a result, RIDS also located a letter from a third party that accompanied the work laptop and two two FD-1004s, which are FBI evidence chain of custody forms, and a three-page forensic report detailing the actions performed by an outside entity to image the work laptop. These newly located records were not indexed to the subject, Seth Rich within the central record system, nor is Seth Rich's name mentioned in the FD-1004s or the forensic report. These records were attached to the physical evidence, the work laptop, the DVD, and the tape drive, and were not electronically uploaded to the electronic case file in Sentinel. Sentinel is the the record-keeping software that the FBI uses. Accordingly, a search of Seth Rich's name would not have located these records, even with a text search of Sentinel. It was only it was where, where did we go. It was only through discussions with the special agent assisting RIDS to locate the work laptop that RIDS was able to determine that the report letter from a third party and chain of custody forms existed and were related to Seth Rich's work laptop. The special agent advised RIDS that disclosure of these records would cause harm to an FBI investigation and Department of Justice prosecution of several employees of the government of the Russian Federation. More details discussed below. Whoa, whoa, whoa. The special agent advised RIDS that disclosure of these records would cause harm to an FBI investigation. That means one that's going on now and the DOJ's prosecution of several employees of the government of the Russian Federation. Upon review of the letter from a third-party three-page forensic report and two chain of custody forms, RIDS determined that these documents were responsive records subject to the FOIA, even though the physical work laptop, DVD, and tape drive are not agency records subject to FOIA. Therefore, immediately upon discovering these new responsive records, the FBI commenced processing the records and determined they would be withheld in full, pers- pers- in full pursuant to FOIA exemptions 367 a 7C, and 7E. These ex- Which exemptions they are matter. You can learn a lot from those, and I'm going to try and get into those real quick before the end of the show. The FBI's justification for withholding these pending records is discussed at length in these paragraphs here of the Cytle Declaration. Conclusion. The FBI processed and released all reasonably segregable, non-exempt information from records responsive to plaintiff's FOIA requests that are subject to FOIA. The FBI processed the records under the access provisions of the FOIA to achieve maximum disclosure. Information was properly withheld in its entirety pursuant to FOIA exemptions 3, 6, 7A, 7C, and 7E. The FBI carefully examined the documents and determined the information withheld from plaintiff in this case, if disclosed, could reasonably be expected to interfere with pending or prospective enforcement proceedings. Would reveal statutorily protected information, would cause a clearly unwarranted invasion of personal privacy or could reasonably be expected to constitute an unwarranted invasion of personal privacy and would disclose techniques and procedures for law enforcement investigations. Further, the FBI determined the work laptop, the DVD and the tape drive are not records subject to FOIA. After extensive review of these documents, the FBI determined there is no further non-exempt information that can be reasonably segregated and released without revealing exempt information. Now, This is the CIDL declaration, which I don't have time to read. The other thing they filed, though, is this, which is 125 pages. And at first I was like, oh, my God, 125 page filing. What in the world? I don't want to read all this thing. But I soon realized that the bulk of it are policy guides. Digital evidence policy guide is published in full here with tons of redactions, Tons of redactions in it. Um, uh, There's, (laughs) it's kind of a mess. Um, And there's another uh, book that's filed in here, another policy guide book that's filed. But what's most interesting about this 125 page filing is right up here at the top. Oh, come on, come back, go back up here. I made it I made it mad by scrolling so much of it at a time. Right here. Here is the explanation for the redactions. Now, B6 B7A, B7C, B7E. I'm going to skip B3 for now because it's the juiciest one. And see what's B6. We can scroll down and it gives us what they are right here, okay? So B six is personnel and medical files and similar files. The disclosure of which would constitute an unwarranted invasion of privacy. Okay, well that one's kind of boring. Invasion of privacy seems like that one's pretty broad. You could use it for a lot of things, but okay. Can't you just redact the names, you know? But B seven A C and E. What are those? All right, let's scroll down. B seven A C E. Let's look. Let's look at those exemptions. B seven. A, could reasonably be expected to interfere with enforcement proceedings. Hey, that's good. That's good because we want enforcement. We want law enforcement to solve the murder of Seth Rich, right? We want law enforcement to solve the murder of Seth Rich and... To find out what all he was involved in We want the DNC hack fully investigated And those responsible prosecuted And I'm not talking about the normie Explanation of the DNC hack I'm talking about the real People behind it I'm talking about the real people Behind Seth Rich's murder I'm not talking about What MSM told us happened And the fact that MSM and the state, deep state, has an explanation for it that we're all supposed to accept and that it's already been solved and it's already done doesn't jive very well with the fact that we know the DNC hack investigation is still ongoing and we know that there's a law enforcement proceeding right here that this exemption is being claimed under There's some, there's still work being, this case is still active. So the official explanation obviously is not the full explanation. And this thing isn't solved, right? No matter what MSM says, we know from these exemptions that this is still an active investigation. And this is still evidence as part of that active investigation, right? So that's a, what is C? C, could reasonably be expected to constitute an unwarranted invasion of privacy. Oh, that one again. Okay, well, you can redact stuff. That's, that's a catch-all one you guys like to use. But C, or there's C. Now, what's E? The last one was E. E, would disclose techniques and procedures for law enforcement investigations or prosecutions or would disclose guidelines for law enforcement investigations or prosecutions if such disclosure could reasonably be expected to risk circumvention of the law. Exemption B7E is one of the ones they use when the evidence has been gathered in some way that would disclose a technique or procedure, such as a secret program or a source such as a confidential human source or something along those lines. They use B7E. I have a pet theory about Seth Rich and that theory, my hypothesis, not theory, I should say my hypothesis about Seth Rich is that one, we know that Seth Rich was talking to the FBI about the DNC hack. We know that he had been interviewed about it. I think that Seth Rich, maybe he wasn't made a confidential human source, but I think he was cooperating with the FBI in their investigation. And I think that's why they're claiming E here. Now, it could be something else. But I think that Seth Rich himself was a source of information. And so one of the reasons they are hiding everything having to do with these, these laptops and um, claiming these exemptions is because they're protecting her, their source, who was Seth Rich. I'm not sure about this, but... I, this is a hypothesis I've been kicking around for a while and I think it makes a lot of sense giving the exemptions and giving that we know he had met with the FBI and had discussed with him with them the the DNC hack. Now the last one here is B3 is B3. And B3 is specifically exempted from disclosure by statute other than section 552B of this title, provided that such statute requires that matters be withheld from the public in such a manner as to leave no discretion or issue or establishes particular criteria for withholding or refers to particular types of matters to be withheld. And, okay, and that's, a, that's kind of a convoluted legal sentence there, specifically exempted from disclosure by statute. What does this mean? And then you look at it, right? This is the juiciest thing, guys. You look at it and you see that 50 USC 3024I1 is listed as the reason cited under B3. So let's look that up. Let's look up what is 50 USC 3024. Let's look this up. All right, I got it here. 50 U.S. Code 3024, responsibilities and authorities of the Director of National Intelligence. So this is I-1. What does I-1 say? Scroll down and find the letter I. G-H-I. I-1. Protection of intelligent sources and methods. The Director of National Intelligence shall shall protect intelligent sources and methods from unauthorized disclosure. So this work laptop is claimed under exemption from FOIA under B-350 USC 3024 I-1, which means it's exempt at the direction of the Director of National Intelligence so as to protect intelligence sources and methods from unauthorized disclosure. So the director of national intelligence under Trump, right, well, it would be all of them. It would be ever since the Trump administration and continuing into the Biden administration has said, yo, don't reveal this. It's too important. I think I think that's pretty big. The director of national, at the direction of the director of national intelligence, the Seth Rich work laptop is being exempted from FOIA because it would reveal intelligence sources and methods that the director of national intelligence is responsible for protecting. That's that right there. Now, y'all probably heard me say before. Like, hey, these exemptions are really important, guys. You can look at these exemptions and you can learn a lot through deductive reasoning and, you know, tr- you know, thinking about this stuff. Like, what are they trying to hide? You have to look at these exemptions that can give you a lot of insight into why they're exempt and what might be under those exemptions. That's a big one right there. Uh, that's why i say that
0: okay <clears throat>
1: that is my show for today thank you guys very much for uh sitting with me y'all are so y'all are all such nerds man i can't believe that there's there's like 1800 people watching me read this stuff um I don't know how many people are, I don't know, 100 people over on Foxhole. Thank you guys for watching. Really appreciate it. And uh, I hope you got something out of it. So hope you guys have a wonderful Monday. Yeah, nerds do rule. Once the nerds get involved, uh, we figure stuff out, don't we? So make sure you watch Defected. Over on Badlands Media, catch the replay on Rumble, Defected, me and Burning Bright. We had a great conversation last night. hope you guys will check that out. Enjoy it. If you like this show, uh, please share it. Give it a plus. Give it a thumbs up over on Rumble. That really helps me out over there. And uh, I hope you all guys have a great day. Stay positive. And uh, remember, we're not going to win every battle, but we are going to win this war. Y'all have a good one. I'll see you on Wednesday, 9.30 a.m. There we go.